Good morning, Franklin City Church. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Go ahead and stand up. Let's prepare to worship together as God's people. What a joy it is to, to gather together as God's people, his sons and daughters, his bride, to worship him. We who once were dead have been granted life. We who once who did not have eyes to see have been granted sight and faith, called and drawn near. So as those who've been risen, drawn, and saved, let us rejoice together in the word that our great God and Father has spoken to us. Let's read together this text out of Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. As God's people, we're not resurrected to a new life to walk alone. We've been called to life together, to worship him together. Many individuals, one people, united together with Christ. The psalmist exhorts us to worship with our whole hearts in the company of other believers in the congregation. Whole hearts, it's not a huddle of empty emotional expression. The psalmist says, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. We gather and behold God in his holiness together. We study and delight in his works together. We remember and rejoice in the redemption that we have in him together. We stand under his splendor and his majesty together. For the Lord, our God, is gracious and merciful. Father, as we come together as your people to worship this morning, God, do as the psalmist praises you for doing. Cause your wondrous works to be remembered. You are gracious and you are merciful. God, help us to remember the great things that you have done that we may worship in truth and help our hearts to respond to what you have revealed about yourself to be true and your testimony in our lives so that we worship in spirit, in spirit and truth as you have sought us out to come to you together to worship you. Grant us that today. Grant us joy in our worship as we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who has 
has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Let's behold the wondrous mystery that is our Christ together.
Behold the wondrous mystery, Christ slain by death, the God of life. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. What a taste, what a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected. Rejoice that we bring nothing because of the fullness and the sufficiency of our Christ. It is in our weakness that he is strong. It is in our nothing that he is our everything. 
your wondrous works to be remembered by your people as we gather to worship. That you have revealed yourself in your words so that we may know you. And you have drawn us near to know you. Father God, stir in our hearts right now. Stir by your spirit through your word, that our hearts may be filled with understanding and wisdom from your word that you have revealed, and that our hearts may rejoice, may rejoice in these great truths. Do that which only you can do, God. Make your word fill us and give us life. This is the word of God according to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. 
Heights. Well, good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews uh, 13. One uh, final time, I guess, we'll uh, be concluding our, our series of preaching through the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, but before we get to Hebrews 13, and as you're turning there, I'd like to start out by giving you an image that comes from another passage of Scripture, and uh, we'll have that one up on the screen from Matthew uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 21. So as you're turning to Hebrews 13, I want you just to hear this verse from Matthew 4. Uh, this is when Jesus is starting to call his disciples uh, to follow him, and we see in, in Matthew 4, verse 21, it says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending... And that's the word I want you to notice, mending their nets, and he called them. Now, the reason that I bring up Matthew 4, verse 21, is because that word mending is the same Greek word that we see in Hebrews 13, 21, for equip. Or some of you might have the word translated uh, perfect. It's a word that means to repair something so that it can be useful once again. It was used in classical Greek literature to describe the process of physicians when they would set or realign broken bones so that they could be healed. To equip or to mend something is to set right that which has gone wrong. To set right that which has gone wrong. And so fishermen, their nets, they would oftentimes, they would get tangled. They would get uh, broken. They would break after going fishing. And so before they would use those nets again, they would have to mend the nets. They would have to untangle them. They'd have to repair them. They'd have to fix them in order for those nets to once again be able to be used for what they were made to be used for. And this reminded me of an extension cord that we have at our house. And it's an it's a outdoor extension cord. It's a really long extension cord. You can plug it in in the garage and, and reach like any part of our yard, and it's great. But the one problem with it is that no matter how careful I am to really wrap that cord in a nice, neat, you know, wrapping, when I, see, when I go to get it out of the shed, inevitably, it's in this huge tangled knot. And I don't know why that is or what's happening there. I don't know if someone's sneaking into the shed and just tying the most complex knot they can think of uh, uh, so just to frustrate me. I don't know what's happening. But, but inevitably, anytime I want to get that extension cord out and use it, I have to at least plan on five minutes of just untangling, of just mending, of just getting it back to where it can once again be useful so that I can use it for what it was made to be used for. Church, did you know, because of the effects of sin in our world and in our hearts, that we need to be equipped and mended as well? In order for us to be able to do the will of God, in order for us to do what we were created to do, in order for us to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we need to be equipped. We need to be mended. We need things in our hearts to be set right that have gone wrong so that we might do the will of God. And the author of Hebrews here, he, 
he knows this because as he's wrapping up this letter or some possibly maybe wrapping up this sermon to the original recipients, he closes with this prayer of blessing, a benediction, right? And he's essentially asking that God would equip them with everything good that they might do his will. He's essentially saying, you are the nets, and he's praying a prayer that God would mend the nets, that he would set right that which has gone wrong, so that we might do God's will. And church, the beautiful truth is, is that for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ for our salvation, for our right standing for God, For those in Christ, God is equipping us with everything good. He is. He's equipping us. He's mending us. And the title of this morning's sermon is Equipped with Everything Good. Equipped with Everything Good. And so as we consider that, as we consider this passage, what are some of the good things he's equipping and mending us with? Well, the first thing we see is that we are being equipped with God's word. Look at verse 22, Hebrews 13, verse 22. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. To bear with the word means to be patient with the word. It means to endure with the word. It means to hold firm to it, to patiently endure with it, even when difficulties arise. And it is as we hold firm, it is as we bear with God's word, that God is equipping and mending us and preparing us for the work that he would have for us. Paul says something very similar. It's a different Greek term, but it's getting at the very same idea in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, when he writes to Timothy and he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Church, we must bear with the Word of God. And it is as we bear with the Word of God that God is equipping us, God is mending us, God is untangling the mess we've made. And we must hold on to the Word of God even when difficulties arise. And uh, difficulties, uh, difficulties will arise from us, and they will, difficulties will arise from outside of us, all right? So sometimes the difficulty arises internally. I mean, sometimes it's just difficult to bear with the Word because it's difficult to stay disciplined and having time in the Word, right? Sometimes it's just difficult to, to, to spend the time we need with the Word. Sometimes it's difficult to understand the Word. Sometimes it's difficult to bear with the Word because... We do understand the word, and it's convicting us, and it's challenging us, and it's saying things that we maybe initially don't like or don't make us feel comfortable. Sometimes it's difficult to bear with the word because we don't always see immediate fruit that comes from it. Sometimes we don't always see the direct application to our life that very day. But if we are to be mended, if we are to be equipped, And if the things that have gone wrong are to be set right, 
then we must bear with God's word. We must also bear with God's word when difficulty arises from the outside, externally, right? When the, when the popular public opinion now starts to go against God's revealed will to us. Church, in those times, we must hold firm to his word. When churches around are tempted to compromise or brothers and sisters around us are tempted to rationalize and try to find a way around some of the truths that the scripture speaks or when people start to relativize and just say what's true for you is true for you. When, they, when, when things start to turn and they start calling speaking the truth in love, they start calling that hate speech, especially then church, we must hold firm to this word. For this is God's revealed will to us. There's a lot about his sovereign will, or some people call his hidden will, that we don't always understand. We don't always know how he's working, but he has given us his revealed will. And in order for us to do his will, we must know what it says. We must read it. We must study it. We must prayerfully meditate upon it. We must obey it. We must apply it. We must teach it. And as we do those things and as we persevere with it, God is equipping us for what he has for us in the future. God is mending us. He's setting the bone. He is getting us ready. He's, he's setting right what has gone wrong so that we might be prepared for what he has for us. Now, most specifically, our author of Hebrews here, he's encouraging his recipients to bear with this word that he has written to them, which we now call the book of Hebrews. And we're going to have an opportunity next week to really directly apply this, uh, to bear with this letter to the Hebrews, uh, as we are going to do something next week that's a little different. We haven't done this uh, before. Uh, it's going to be a little bit outside of maybe some of our comfort zones or just what we're used to. Uh, but we are going to take next week to read the entire book of Hebrews together in this worship gathering. All right. It's about 40 minutes to read. Uh, so we will do it in place of having a sermon. We'll we'll space it out with some other aspects of worship. So it's not too overwhelming or overbearing as far as just hearing the word. But listen, this was written really to be heard in one sitting. This was written almost like a sermon, and this possibly was a sermon. And it's way better of a sermon than any of us here could ever preach. <laughs> so next week, even though it'll be maybe a little different for us, we are going to not neglect the public reading of Scripture. We are going to put God's Word front and center, and we are going to hear this entire book of Hebrews read over us. We're going to bear with it. And there, as we hear God's word, I, my hope is that as we've taken really about a past, this past year to preach through Hebrews, my hope is that as you hear it all in one sitting, that you will be re-reminded of some of the things we've learned throughout this past year. That it would re-spark your, your mind to go back and maybe read some passages in Hebrews again and to re-listen to some of the sermons again so that some of these truths that we have learned in Hebrews would be solidified in our hearts and our minds. You'll remember that we've seen this overarching theme in Hebrews that Jesus is better, that Jesus is better. We've seen all throughout that he's a better messenger than the prophets, that he's a better guardian than the angels, that he's a better leader than Moses, that he's a better general than Joshua, that he's a better priest than Aaron. 
We've seen how he mediates a better covenant upon better promises, and he calls us to live as citizens of a better city and to worship him from a better mountain. And in Christ, we've learned that we have now been raised to a better life. We've also seen in Hebrews why some have called the book of Hebrews the fifth gospel. I mean, we know the first four, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those all describe Christ's ministry on earth. But in Hebrews, we've seen Christ's ministry in heaven really described and played out for us. Some people call it the fifth gospel. We've seen Christ's ministry in heaven as he is our great high priest. We've also, in Hebrews, and part of the reason he has to tell these recipients to bear with his word of exhortation is because we've seen some pretty strong warnings throughout the book of Hebrews as well. And sometimes we just have to patiently endure and bear with some very strong warnings and words of exhortations. We've been warned against the dangers of spiritual apathy. We think that we can just be complacent or neutral in our faith, and yet there are some very strong warnings in Hebrews about the danger of living in that state of just being spiritually apathetic. Such a dangerous place to be. We've been warned of drifting away from God's word, the word that's been given to us. We've been warned to not drift away from it at all. And so church, certainly this word, this book of Hebrews, is something very, very good that as we read it, as we study it, as we prayerfully consider it and apply it, God is equipping us. He's setting right what has gone wrong. He's mending our hearts. We must patiently hold firm to the word of God. But not only has God given us his word to equip us and mend us, uh, to do his will, but look at verse 20 and see that he has also given us his peace. Hebrews 13, verse 20. God's word says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, with everything good that you may do as well. Now, most humans desire peace. I mean, isn't this the cliche answer of those in beauty pageants? Uh, isn't this the, the unkept promise of most politicians, right? They, they want and they promise world peace. And this desire for peace, it is a good thing. It is a God-given thing. But it cannot be attained, and it cannot be enjoyed, and it cannot be experienced apart from God, who is described here as the God of peace. This is our God, church, the God of peace. Our God is the God of peace. Now, what this means is that God is the ultimate source of peace. God is the ultimate maker of peace. And God is the ultimate giver of peace. And there will be no true or lasting peace that will be experienced in this world or in our hearts unless God gives us peace. Peace. Peace is a word that means the joining or binding together. It's getting at the idea of bringing together that which has been separated, okay? It's the, it's the opposite of division, okay? Making peace is the opposite of dividing over something. 
And this biblical concept of peace or shalom is usually describing this completeness, this wholeness, this soundness. And most all humans, we desire peace, we desire shalom, we desire, we long for wholeness. But because of sin, we as humans have ultimately rebelled against God. Our sin has separated us from Him. And therefore, we have not had peace with God. And therefore, we have also not had peace with one another. However, thanks be to God that He has made a way for what has gone wrong to be set right through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God in the flesh who willingly came to earth and lived the life of obedience that we failed to live. Who died a sacrificial death on a cross in our place and three days later he rose from the dead defeating Satan's sin and death. And after spending time with his disciples then he ascended into heaven where he is now ruling and reigning as king and he is now interceding for us as our priest. And his blood that was poured out for our sins has ratified an eternal covenant by which all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will no longer be enemies of God, separated from him, but now they will be adopted into the family of God. And the sin that came between them and God will be taken away and they will now have peace with God. Peace with God. Church, the greatest thing, the greatest thing that needed mended in us was we needed peace with God. Our sin had separated us from Him. And this is what our Savior and Great Shepherd has provided for us. Paul, when he writes to the Romans in Romans 5 verse 1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning, therefore, therefore, since we have been declared right with God by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, Jesus is the only way to peace because God is the only source of true peace, and the only way to Him is through Christ. And in fact, this even gets better because it's not as if we just get our own peace and that we are then liable to make a mess of once again. No, we are actually given Jesus' peace that he has with the Father. In John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Therefore, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, this is not a peace that we can lose. This is not a peace we can make a mess of because it is Jesus's peace. And therefore, if Jesus is at peace with the Father and I am in him, then God's disposition towards me in Christ will always be that of peace. God will not be making war on me any longer when I am in Christ. His disposition toward me will be one of peace. Now, we've learned in Hebrews that certainly still God disciplines those he loves, as a father does a son. But he's no longer making war on us. If we've been given Jesus' peace, 
then God's disposition towards us is one of peace. What has been separated has now become one. You see, when we try to pursue peace our own way, and when we try to pursue peace apart from God, it never works out. Because apart from God, and apart from people surrendering to King Jesus and receiving the peace with God that he has purchased by his blood, there will never be true and lasting peace. But church, you have something that the whole world is longing and looking for. You have something that most politicians could never come through on. In Christ, you now have peace with God. And your peace with God is now equipping you to do His will. You now have a risen Savior, the text says which means he will never die again. You have a risen Savior who is now your great shepherd, who mediates a better covenant. This phrase, the eternal covenant, uh, eternal covenant that we see in the word here is the same phrase describing the new covenant that we have learned about throughout Hebrews. It's really another phrase for the heavenly covenant of all the shadow covenants that have come before We've learned that the new covenant is the culmination of Jesus fulfilling the covenant of works and finalizing the covenant of grace. For it is under the new covenant that now God has written his law upon our minds and onto our hearts. He has caused us to be born again so that following God's word is no longer an external duty, but now it can be an internal delight. It is under the new covenant that we can experience that intimate, close relationship with God through our union with Christ. And it is under the new covenant where now our sins are forgiven and taken away so that we might have peace with God. And therefore, under the new covenant, we are now empowered and equipped to make peace with one another. Because our ultimate desire and need for peace between God, Christ has made a way. Now we are equipped and empowered to make peace with one another. Now let's acknowledge, though, I mean, let's be, let's be realistic about this, all right? Let's not have our head up in the clouds. We don't always feel peaceful. We don't always feel at peace. But the truth is, is that in Christ, we do have peace. And this is where we must be careful to not let our feelings or our emotions deceive us as to what we may or may not actually have. But instead, we must hear God's word. We must receive God's word. We must see that in Christ we now have his peace. And we must allow the truth of what we have to inform how we now feel. We can't let how we feel inform what we believe we actually have. We must see and learn and hear and receive what we have and allow that to inform and direct how we feel. Church, in Christ, All is well. All is well. In Christ, we have the peace that we ultimately needed and the ultimate that we ultimately longed for. 
And I was, I was reading a story about a missionary named Jim Walton. And he was uh, working as a New Testament translator, uh, translating the New Testament into a language of a tribal group in the jungles of Colombia. But he was having trouble knowing how to translate the word for peace. Like he hadn't, he hadn't found a word in their language that really made sense with peace. He didn't know what it could be. And, uh, and really this, is, this can be a problem as peace is not something that is very prevalent in places where Christ has not been proclaimed. And around that time that he was trying to find a word for peace, the, 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 the chief of the village uh, got in a little dispute with him. Uh, I guess that Jim had promised the chief a, a plane ride, and something happened with the pilot or something where it just didn't work out that day. And the chief came to him very angry and kept repeating this same phrase in his language that Jim had no idea what he was saying. But the phrase in his language that he was saying, the villagers later told Jim that it meant, I don't have one heart. That's what the chief of the village was, was saying. I don't have one heart. I don't have one heart. I don't have one heart. And Jim still was like not really understanding what this meant. He asked the other, other villagers, what does it mean to have one heart? And they told him it means that there is nothing between you and that other person. Nothing between and so the chief, who was upset, he was saying, I don't have one heart. Meaning, there was some beef between him and Jim, right? Which I think later, it got worked out, he got his plane ride, and it was all, it was all good. But through that misunderstanding, Jim found his word for peace, and it was their word for one heart. One heart. Because this is what biblical peace means. It means that there is nothing between you and the other person. You have peace. There's nothing between us. And church, if your faith is in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have peace with God. And there is nothing between you and Him. And if Christ then has spilt his own blood to make peace between us and him, that peace we have with him should then equip us to pursue peace with our brothers and sisters and with our neighbors. Blessed are the peacemakers. How can we be equipped to be a peacemaker? Enjoy the peace you have with God. Let that empower and equip you. That is the peace that should rule our hearts, regardless of what might be going on around us. You remember, the original recipients, they were not in a time of peace. I mean, it w I mean this would have hit them a little weird to hear that God is a God of peace. They were facing persecution. This was not a peaceful time. This might have been very difficult for them to remember the, the peace they had with God. They were facing imprisonment. They were facing abuse. They were facing mistreatment, and yet they were reminded that their main need, the main thing that they needed mended was that they needed peace with God, and in Christ they have it, and if they have peace with God, then all is well. He's saying, therefore, do not fear all the opposition and division and persecution around you in Christ all is well. You've got the ultimate peace that you needed.
And if you have peace with God, that will equip you to do God's will in the future because now Christ will shepherd you through everything that comes your way. The great shepherd of the sheep, as Hebrews 13 calls him. I mean, how amazing is this? That we who once were enemies of God can now through Christ echo that famous psalm of David and say the Lord is now our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil and our cups overflow. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Our God is certainly equipping us with everything good that we may do his will. He is equipping us with his word. He is equipping us with his peace. And he is equipping us with his grace. Look back at Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now you see, sometimes Christians wrongly believe that we need God's grace to be justified, right? To be saved, declared right with him. But then the rest is up to us. We don't really need grace for the rest of it, right? We just needed grace for that kind of initial entrance into our walk with Jesus. But now we'll, we'll kind of take it from here. And we've talked about this a few times in the book of Hebrews that actually God's word says, no, no, no. You didn't much need God's grace at the beginning. You need God's grace every step of the way. We are actually being equipped. We are being mended. We are being perfected for every work, good work for God by God working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. We are being equipped by God working in us. Yes, we are saved by God's grace, but we are also being equipped by God's grace, by His indwelling Spirit that is working in us. And Jerry Bridges, in the past, he's written about a few ways how we wrongly think of Christian, how a Christian grows or how a Christian is equipped. And the first misconception is that it is God, then me. God, then me, right? This is the view that, uh, you know, God does everything to save me, but then the rest is up to me, right? Now it's time to get down to work, and I'm going to get after it, right? God does the start, but now I've got to take it from here. And we'd say that's not the most biblical view or perspective to have. Sometimes we wrongly think that the life of a Christian, it looks like God, not me. 
right? This is kind of the, the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, just let go, let God, God's sovereign. I'll just kind of complacently sit back, and, and God can just kind of do whatever he wants. Sometimes we wrongly think the life of a Christian looks like God plus me. Like, God does some, and then I do some. And like, maybe we meet halfway. Or maybe halfway is a percentage that you don't, or you're not comfortable with. Maybe it's God does 98%, and then we do 2%. God plus me. But I believe the most biblically consistent view, and the view that we see here in Hebrews, it's not God then me. It's not God not me. It's not God plus me. It is God in me. God in me. It is God working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And this is not an isolated teaching just to the book of Hebrews. We see this all throughout the scriptures. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul writes to the Corinthians, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not, not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He worked, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul writes to the Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He then writes to the Colossians, Colossians 1, verse 29, For this I toil, struggling, with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Church, we are certainly called to work. We are certainly called to do his will. But we can only do this because he is already graciously working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. You see, we will miss out, we will fall short of doing the will of God if we try to go about this in our own strength or in our own power or by our own grit and determination. No, this has to be done by the powerful grace of God that is working in us. And when we realize this, when we embrace this, when we experience this grace of God, this indwelling grace of God by the power of His Holy Spirit, oh, what confidence this gives us, what surety this brings to us, right? What assurance this brings to us, because now we know our nets will hold, our bones will be healed and not break, and what was wrong will be set right, knowing that it is God Himself at work in us through His Spirit. What a comfort that is, church. What a comfort that is. That the God of peace is mending and equipping the nets of our hearts right now. He is resetting the bones so that they can be healed. And maybe some of you right now, you're in a season where you do feel pulled and tugged and you feel pain and it's confusion and, and things seem like a tangled mess and you're not sure what's going on in your life. Could it be that God is mending the nets? Could it be that he's resetting the bone? Could it be he's equipping you for the work that he has ahead of you? 
And in conclusion, I love, look at the very last verse. We're, we're wrapping up Hebrews. I think it's a very fitting end to the book. Hebrews 13, 25. He writes, grace be with all of you. Certainly, church, this whole book of Hebrews has been God's grace to us. Sin has caused things to go wrong, both in our hearts and in our world. In our sin, we did not have peace with God, but our great God of peace has made a way for what was wrong to be set right, for what was divided to now be reconciled. And it's all by His grace. May we see our great need to be equipped to do God's will. But may we also see that what God's will requires, God has graciously provided. He equips us with his word. He equips us with his peace. And he equips us with his grace. So church, may we do his will as he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And may his grace be enjoyed and experienced by all of us. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. And Lord, I, I thank you for all the ways that it has equipped and mended things in my heart and mind. I thank you for how I believe many of us are walking away from this book beholding you a bit more clear, being in awe of you and all, <laughs> and all you have done for us. Lord, we walk away from this book comforted by the fact that, Lord Jesus, you are our great high priest. And that you are interceding for us right now. Lord, I ask that the truths from this, this book would stick with us the rest of our lives. That it would continue to bear fruit in our lives as individuals, in the lives of our families, in the lives in the life of our church, God. We know we can't always see immediate fruit from your word, but we know, Lord, that it does not return uh, without what you had purposed and accomplished for it. And so we look expectantly to see the fruit that your word will produce in us. Father, may you continue to equip us with your word, give us a love and a desire to know you more and to know your word more. Father, I ask for those that don't feel at peace right now, God, I ask that the, the truth that has been seen in your scripture, Lord, I ask that that would inform their emotions and that they would be able to enjoy the peace they have with you, the peace that Jesus has given them. And Lord, if anyone's in here right now who has not been given that peace, I ask that you would open their eyes to the truth, that you would convict them of sin, that they would see their need of a Savior, that they would see their need to be mended and equipped and be at peace with God. Oh Lord, and would you provide that today for them? 
Would the Holy Spirit apply to them what Christ has accomplished for them in this moment, in this day, God? And Lord, I ask that you would continue to equip us with your grace. Oh Lord, may we have a grace-driven effort in all we say and do and how we live and how we work and how we raise kids and how we pastor churches and how we live alongside one another and pursue this great commission that you've given us. Lord, may, may it be empowered by your grace. We love you. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and let's continue to worship. Your ways are 
Jesus, we trust you. Your ways are higher than our own. This we know that you will see the enemy run. This we know we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you What a sweet gift to gather. Sometimes I hate when my voice has to break. Just sweet worship. Um, But we get to respond. And uh, the Lord's Supper is, it's so complex. It's unsearchable, instituted by Christ himself. But thinking about the sermon here, Christ in us. Right, it takes something outside of ourselves. One element of the Lord's Supper is we physically do this and remember and acknowledge together by taking something outside of our bodies, the bread and the cup, putting them in, and it gives us a picture of the Holy Spirit, the saving power that the cross gives us. So we never outgrow the cross, the beauty of it, God illuminates in different ways, and even. Thinking back to uh, like our city groups going through Ephesians 1, I think Ephesians 1, something like 10 or 15 times the, the phrase in him, in Christ, in Christ. It keeps going back to that. So we can't ever get too comfortable in what we know 
if Paul can keep coming back to us or coming back to it, I think I think it's a good demonstration. So in Christ, in Christ, in him, the Lord's Supper does not save us. It just recognizes what happened and it, and it unites us together as we say this is this is our hope for eternity here. So pray with me, Lord. We just thank you for the cross. Lord, may we never outgrow the sweetness. May our knowledge never get in the way of your love. Lord, we thank you. We acknowledge we bring nothing to this table. We only receive it because of your grace and your plan. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So take a few minutes to to repent, confess, examine yourselves, and then when you're ready, come up to the table and and grab the cups and uh, go back to your seat, and we'll partake together in a few minutes.
we take the bread and we acknowledge our physical bodies do nothing, not by works, so no man can boast. Let's take the bread together. And the cup, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. And would you stand and we'll continue worship. Sing when he shall come. 
When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. How do we stand? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking Amen. Well, church, it has been good to gather together to worship the Lord here this morning. Uh, one quick announcement. Tonight we are having a kids' ministry night for those in elementary school. Uh, this is the first time we're doing something like this, but a time to engage our kids, uh, elementary age kids, with God's Word, and a time to equip parents for discipleship uh, at home. Uh, parents, you're welcome to either drop off, check in, drop off the kids, or you're welcome to stay as well, uh, whatever you'd prefer. And uh, we'll be here from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. tonight. Uh, but as you go, hear this benediction. Hopefully this sounds familiar to you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you, church. In Christ, all is well. Go and be the church.